Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Jobs jolt, U.S. hiring in April far weaker than hoped. Extended emergency, Japan keeps lockdowns in place, heightening Olympic fears and traffic like travel. The U.K. to green light some quarantine-free trips. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Well, welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Fantastic to have you with us on this jam-packed Jobs Friday. And that is exactly where we're going to begin. Today's job numbers, a mere, and I use the word carefully, 266,000 jobs were created in the United States last month. That is far weaker than consensus estimates, which were for around 1 million new jobs added. Just to be clear, though, some had predicted jobs growth of more than 2 million. Now, this is the crazy world we're in because on any normal occasion, 266,000 jobs added would be a brilliant number. The problem is, of course, we were expecting more. The U.S. also reporting a major downward revision in March. Jobs growth, some 150,000 fewer jobs than first thought. The U.S. also noting that millions of Americans are still not able to work because of the pandemic, despite evidence that employers in some sectors have struggled to find enough help. Remember, too, the U.S. is still some 8 million jobs below its pre-pandemic peak, and more than 7 million Americans are still receiving some kind of employment assistance. Now, we'll be discussing today's jobs numbers with Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman a little bit later on the show. He says, don't panic over all this conflicting data. For now, the Dow futures turning lower on this news with the Dow set to fall from record highs. But Nasdaq futures are rallying. You can see them up some 1.3 percent. Why? Well, it suggests that rates won't go up anytime soon, despite inflationary fears. But remember, it's not all about jobs. Europe finishing the week higher as Siemens and Adidas raised their full-year forecast. German export numbers rising, too, for the 11th straight month. Asia? Well, the session was pretty noncommittal, but we did see some weakness in China. Reports say the Biden administration will keep Trump-era restrictions in place on American investments in China. Wow. Lots to get to this Friday. Let's begin with those non-farm payroll numbers. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, I have to say, clearly, the net job ads here far, far weaker than expected. What I wonder here is whether this is a labour demand problem or a labour supply problem. Well, Julia, I think it's still both, but edging more towards the latter. This is a a labour market where we still have 8.2 million jobs fewer than we had pre-pandemic. So it looks like it has a lot of slack, but it's behaving like a jobs market that doesn't. I think it's interesting to home in on on, on at least one of the sectors that, that showed gains here. 331,000 was the number of jobs added in leisure and hospitality. So so more than the net total. This has been a consistently strong spot over the past few months because it lost so many in that enormous rout of jobs we saw this time last year. But but 331,000, that's still 5.4 million jobs added over the year, but it's still down by 2.8 million or 16.8% since February 2020. So what we're seeing there is that there's still trouble recapturing those jobs that have lost. We talk about sort of secular shifts in the economy. I think some of those jobs may not come back. We have seen businesses go under. So so really interesting to drill down on this. I think this report, though, exemplifies just how difficult it is to forecast in this economy. And of course, looking to the Fed, this, do, this does strengthen their thesis that rates still need to stay low. And I think that's why you see futures coming up this morning. 
Yeah, we've had 13 months of just not being able to forecast what on earth is going on in this economy, quite frankly. But I think to your point, when I see the National Federation of Independent Business saying that 42 percent of small businesses are saying they simply can't find people to hire. And we know people have had stimulus checks, that they're ongoing, of course, too, plus a bump up in unemployment benefits. You wonder whether the trade off here is simply people aren't coming back to work in the size and scale that we were expecting. To your point about wages. And this is a critical point. When you have labour shortages, people you hope, businesses you hope, in fact, have to pay more to get people onto their workforce. And we're seeing that in these numbers too. Yeah, this is starting to show up. Last month, we saw wages tick down a little bit. This month, overall up by 21 cents. That's hourly wages. But looking closer at some of the, the different industries here, because we're still sort of seeing numbers slightly distorted by, by comparisons, given the volatility of the numbers over the past year. I want to look at construction, because here we had a, we had a report last month, Julia, from the Home Builders Association. They're warning of a shortfall of 200,000 workers within that industry. Couple that with the huge increase in demand we're seeing for home building as people want to live in bigger places and improve their homes. And that, you know, creates a potential problem, not just for that industry, but the economy. So 21 cents overall was the uptick in hourly earnings in construction, 73 cents. So we are starting to see signs of wage inflation. And then we got onto the the big question of, you know, the Fed says inflation is going to go up, it's going to be transitory. But but wage inflation is really a different question. Can that be temporary? Or is that going to be sort of a permanent uptick? Great question, and a question I am most definitely going to talk about with uh, Paul Krugman later. Wages in the leisure and tourism sector up 6.8% year on year. That one grabbed me, which is a, a different sector. And I was just doing some maths, so bear with me on this. But I looked at the average hourly earnings, which, to your point, rose 0.7% month on month. If I combine that with the um, increase in hours worked, I make the average weekly earnings up 1% month on month. Sounds like a small number, but that is the most in years. Some signs there, and we will discuss them with Paul Krugman. Claire, great job. Thank you so much for that. Claire Sebastian there. All right, to India now. Official figures say over 1.5 million new COVID cases were diagnosed in just the past four days. And for the 10th day in a row, the number of people who died from the infection was more than 3,000. Vedika Sood joins us on the show once again. Vedika, great to have you with us. I have to say, you know, I'm watching social media avidly overnight. And what's so horrifying, in addition to what you're seeing here, is the pleas for help that people are making on social media. Just talk us through what you're hearing from people. Well, uh, Julia, a lot of people have been saying that while they are angry with the Modi government here in India, they are relying on people on social media. There are a lot of volunteers who are helping. You'll hear desperate pleas, Julia. And if you have been watching them overnight, you would be quite dejected as someone who's closely monitoring what's happening in India. Being an Indian myself, I read them every day. I retweet to help people who are reaching out for help. They're asking volunteers to help with plasma donation. They're asking volunteers to help get them one item see you bed for their daughter, mother, sister, anyone in the family. And more than anything else, they're asking for oxygen supply. Oxygen still is something that is in less supply across India. The government of India has strongly denied that they have been a bit slow in distributing any medical aid coming in globally. But yes, on the ground, we've been sending you reports. There's still people who want oxygen and ICU beds. So it still remains a grim situation here, Julia. But just 
just adding to the numbers you had, India has the second highest total confirmed cases of COVID-19 after the United States. In the last one month, India has reported over 8.3 million confirmed cases of COVID-19. Now, a western state of Goa, where, you know, a lot of people go as a destination kind of place, you know, foreign tourists visited as well, has seen more than 51% active cases taking place out there, which again is a very worrying figure, which means one in two people who are testing are testing positive. You also have the northwestern state of Rajasthan that has gone ahead and announced a temporary lockdown like many other states. So yes, there are curbs in place, but what really stands out is how civilians are coming together, communities are coming together, relying on each other at this moment because they're angry with the government and they claim that there has been inaction to a certain extent by the government when it came to detecting the surge, the second wave surge here in India, and that's why they're relying on each other, which is heartening in a way, but is also saying a lot about the Indian government at this point in time, Julia. Yeah, heartening to watch, but also heartbreaking at the same time. Vedika thank you for that. Stay safe, please. Okay, to Japan now. A state of emergency is extended for Tokyo until the end of this month. The country is struggling with a fourth wave of COVID-19 less than three months before the Summer Olympics, as Blake Essig reports. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Hideaki Oka is making his rounds. For now, it's relatively calm here in the COVID ward at Saitama Medical University. But all that can change in an instant. If two patients enter today and another two patients are admitted tomorrow and all cases turn out to be severe, then the day after tomorrow will already be in a crisis. A crisis that has the potential to explode in just a few months when tens of thousands of people from more than 200 countries enter Japan to participate in the upcoming Summer Olympic Games. It's a frightening scenario for Chief Nurse Kyoko Ioka, who's been treating COVID-19 patients since the beginning. I'm sorry for the athletes, but I'm terrified that the Olympics are going to happen. Is it really worth it? We are in the middle of the fourth wave, and what is the point of having the Olympic Games now? Despite overwhelming concern from medical professionals and the Japanese public, Olympic organizers remain determined to hold the already once delayed Games this summer, pointing to COVID-19 countermeasures outlined in a series of playbooks. It was only just a few months ago that a third wave of infection pushed Japan's medical system in some spots to the breaking point. Here in Saitama, medical staff say they still haven't recovered. While Japan's medical system as a whole is strained, the UK variant has brought the system in Western Japan to its knees. It's really like a natural disaster hit our hospital. But it's a disaster that people on the outside can't see. Unlike previous variants, Dr. Hiroo Matsuo, an infectious disease specialist at Amagasaki General Medical Center in Hyogo, says the current virus variant is spreading faster and seriously impacting younger people, with nearly 1,800 people waiting to be hospitalized. Amid this fourth wave, hospitals are finding they can't admit patients or even treat them, some of whom are dying at home. We are confronting a situation where we want to take more patients, but we just can't. The same situation is unfolding in neighboring Osaka. According to the government website, the hospital bed occupancy rate is maxed out at 103% and nearly 3,000 people are waiting to enter a treatment facility. The result? Doctors like you, Kurahara, are left to repeatedly make a heart-wrenching choice. 
どの患者さんに。With hospitals already struggling to cope with the sheer volume of sick patients, lacking enough beds and adequate staff, experts feel the Olympics could take the entire Japanese medical system past its breaking point. I think if we did allocate help for the Olympics, then our medical system would totally collapse. We're living through a disaster at the moment. So we firstly have to find ways of overcoming this. It's so difficult to be thinking about the Olympics. While we're living through this disaster. A disaster, Dr. Matsuo says, with no end in sight. Blake Essig, CNN, Tokyo. Green for go, going on holiday, that is. The UK set to unveil its green list of quarantine free holiday destinations later today. The plan is Brits can restart international travel on May the 17th. Scott McLean joins us now with all the details. Scott, so talk us through the traffic light system that we're expecting to hear from the government today. And does it make a difference if you're fully vaccinated by one of those that have been authorized, a vaccine that's been authorized in the UK? Is there a way wound around the traffic lights? If I can get my words out. <laughs> yeah, the short answer to that question, Julia, is no, which a lot of companies are, are certainly taking issue with at this point. I should remind you as well that right now in the UK, it's not that Brits are just discouraged from going on holidays abroad. It's actually technically illegal at this moment, at least for another 10 days. And so today is the day when Brits find out where exactly they can go on holidays, at least where they can go on holidays without much of a headache. So, as you mentioned, this is going to be a traffic light system green, amber, red, green, no quarantine at all, amber. Uh, you can quarantine for 10 days at home and, and get out early if you test negative. And then、uh, red means you are locked up in a, a government,、uh, a government uh, hotel room for 10 days and no questions asked, no,、uh, no excuses. In all of these cases, tests are going to be required on day two、uh, when you get back and before you actually board the flight to get back to the UK. And all of these come at a cost. How does the government decide this list? Well, it's based on the factors you might imagine. So, the, the infection rate, the testing level, the country's ability to actually spot new variants and, and sequence the virus. But the government has not published a firm, firm list of criteria as to how they're going to decide this. And so, it's really anyone's guess until they actually announce it sometime later today, Julia. Yeah, I mean, I have a very personal interest in this, of course, because I would like to、um, come home and、uh, see my family at some point soon. So, just understanding which countries are on which part of this list is going to be vitally important, too. But you also mentioned something there that I think is vitally important if they're hoping to get people,、uh, allow people to go and travel and go on holidays the cost, the cost of doing a PCR test, whether it's one or two, whichever country we're talking about. I mean, in certain cases, and I was just looking at it earlier today, 120 to 160 pounds, though I know the government's trying to bring this down. It's a lot of money. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons, Julia, that the travel industry is taking issue with a lot of what the government has announced here. A, because, well, even to green countries, you'll have to test before you get on your return flight and you have to test when you get back. And number two, they're not going to take into vac- vaccination status into account. And three, just the sheer number of tests, which You'll have to pay for, for most of these. And so you can imagine how the cost of these tests can add up, especially if you're going to, say, an amber country where they're going to require you to take a test before you go on your outbound flight to that country. And then the, maybe they'll make you test when you arrive there as well. So that's two tests. Then when you want to go home, you'll have to test before you board your return flight, another test on day two. If it's an amber country, you want to get out of quarantine early, test on day five, and then another one just for good measure on day eight. 
We're talking about six tests there, Julia. So yeah, okay, travel corridors, they're opening, people can go on vacation this summer, but it's still gonna be a bit of a headache. Yeah, and the quarantine, in addition to the added cost of all the tests potentially, and the fact <laughs> yeah, exactly. that you've had a vaccine and it doesn't qualify. Ah, I can understand why the travel industry is saying, you're not helping us. You're trying, but you're not helping. Scott McLean, thank you so much for that. All right, so let's come here on First Move. The bumpy boom. Don't panic about the surging U.S. economy, says Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. He'll explain why next. And the diamonds that weren't forever. Pandora ditches mine gems for the lab-grown variety. We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York. We are on the job for you this Friday as we break down today's disappointing U.S. employment report. 266,000 jobs were created last month, far fewer than expected, with notable weakness in a manufacturing sector that's been dealing with numerous supply disruptions. Jobs growth in March was revised sharply lower as well. I have to say U.S. futures holding up pretty well on the news, perhaps on the perception that this justifies the Fed being on hold for longer. You can see the Nasdaq gaining some 1% pre-market. Also today, lots of market chatter surrounding the Federal Reserve's latest financial stability report, which offers a sobering assessment of the current market. The Fed warning on hidden hedge fund risk and saying that some asset valuations may be, quote, vulnerable to significant declines should risk appetite fall. Now, April's jobs numbers is the outlier in a run of data signaling a strong U.S. recovery from the pandemic that had some pundits fretting about what my next guest calls a big bad boom. To those worrying about an economy that's too hot to handle, he has two words of advice. Don't panic. And I'm pleased to say he's Paul Krugman, New York Times columnist, Nobel laureate and author. His most recent book is Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics and the Fight for a Better Future. Professor Krugman, Paul, fantastic to have you on the show. Your article is fantastic and I want to talk about that. But first, I should get your view on what you make of today's job numbers, please. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the the short technical summary is what the hell? That doesn't that doesn't match anything that we're seeing in other data, other evidence. Um, And it could be that something is going on or it could be, I mean, a general principle when you get an economic number that doesn't really look like anything else you're seeing is to question whether there's some kind of data issue. Uh, The BLS is is a a totally above the board agency, uh, but stuff happens. And, uh, you know, people I'm talking to, there have been obviously a huge flurry of, of, uh, of emails back and forth about this, are saying, well, maybe there's some issue with seasonal adjustments. Uh, we are seeing some problems in manufacturing. So maybe some of these chip shortages are, are having an effect. But, you know, I think the basic point right now is, okay, this kind of dents the narrative, certainly it dents the narrative about a runaway boom, but uh, I think we wait and see to, to figure out what, what is really going on here. It, it just, yeah. It's just so much with everything else. I was going to say one data point does not a trend make. Um, but anecdotally, yeah. and I was talking about this earlier on the show, I mean, we do have signs. I mean, the um, National Federation of Independent Business saying 42% of their small and medium-sized businesses saying, look, they're simply struggling to hire. Noises from the manufacturing sector that's saying they're even struggling to hire entry level. Do you think this could be a a supply issue feeding into what was up until this point a demand issue? It doesn't look like it. I mean, the, you know, we have two surveys. There's the, uh, the enterprise survey, which is the one that gave us the surprisingly weak number. But the household survey is saying that 
you know, several hundred thousand people entered the labor force, uh, which is not consistent with that story. Uh, you had big job gains in uh, leisure and hospitality, which is exactly the sector you expect people to be most inclined to stay home because of uh, either virus risks or, or unemployment benefits. So it, it, the, the details of the data don't actually look like a labor constraint story. So uh, it, and, and as I pointed out in today's column, the, uh, uh, whenever the economy is recovering, you always get a lot of uh, small businesses saying we can't uh, hire workers, uh, which is really saying, at least in the past, has really said, well, uh, you know, last year we were able to get anybody we wanted because uh, there, there was a huge surplus. And this time we actually might have to offer higher wages. Uh, which they they read as a labor shortage. It's it's not. I mean, not going to say there's nothing there, but there really is nothing in these data to to support that view. So that brings us back to your uh, big bad boom theory and the rising right. panic of uh, things like inflation based on you know all the things we've seen in the past when we come into a recovery period. Admittedly, this one's um, to quote you in another technical term, weird. But lumber prices, commodity prices. Why yeah. shouldn't we be alarmed? Well, I mean, there's a, first of all, there's just the, the historical record, which is that in the past, surges in commodity prices, certainly in the past uh, 30 plus years, have not led to sustained inflation. So I, I've been getting some mail already saying, have you looked at what's happening to copper prices? Well, I actually talked about copper in the column and, and pointed out that there was a huge surge in copper prices in 2010, 2011, which turned out to mean nothing about future inflation. It's just a, a bottleneck. A, a, that's that tends to happen when the economy is recovering, and so it, it's not such a big deal. Lumber is a new one. I mean, this was a. We don't usually have sawmills uh, guessing wrong about how much uh, capacity to have online, and that's because this was such a weird recession and recovery. But uh, there's just nothing. It everything is about not short-term fluctuations in. You know, particular commodities, but it's about whether inflation expectations are getting built into setting of prices, not not you know raw material prices currently, but expectations of future inflation. And so far, there's no sign of that. I mean, in earnings season, we had the most mentions of inflation since 2004. We had yeah. uh, Warren Buffett saying, "Look, we're raising prices, our uh, supply chain are raising prices, and people are accepting it, and we're getting on with it." These are again anecdotal signs, and some or enough are talking about labour shortages, whether or not it's relevant for today's jobs number at all. How important is this? Because the, the real question is, at what point do all of these things feed into future inflation or at least future inflation expectations and then become entrenched? Yeah, that's a hard, it's always hard to judge. You want it, and it's funny, you, you really do want to be looking for anecdotes because the, the official data, well, the, you want to be looking at some data as well, but you want to be looking for anecdotes, but you want to be looking for anecdotes, anecdotes that go beyond, well, the cost of our materials is up, so we're having to raise prices. You want to look for anecdotes where people are saying, well, you know, we're going to be setting our price for the next year, and we're going to be doing as we expect that the overall level of prices is going to be rising 7% over the next year, so we need to get ahead of that. So that, that's the kind of thing you're looking for. And, of course, that's hard to track down, but you look for it. And then we're, we're looking for... I think at this point, we, we really need to be looking at measures of underlying inflation, which is a well-defined concept, but hard to map into actual data. But I, I'm looking at things like, uh, like median price inflation, trim mean price inflation, things that, that strip out the bumper shortage, that sort of thing, and then focus on what is, is probably more deeply embedded in the economy. And those things are not, at this point, showing any signs to, of 
things that we should be concerned about. So the shortage economy tends to work its way out, even in this kind yeah. of environment, which is plain weird. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's uh, at some point we won't have a large fraction of the world's uh, containers aboard ships that are steaming back and forth uh, outside the, the ports of California. And so the container shortage will, uh, will abate. At some point, uh, lumber supplies, it's not really even, it's not trees, it's, it's sawmills. At some point that will catch up. So those sorts of things. And we've been here before. Again, it, it, uh, you really need to, maybe it helps to have, have been very uh, involved with the debates around 2010, 2011, when an increase in commodity prices led to you know, the, uh, Congress people calling Ben Bernanke uh, on the carpet and saying, you're debasing the dollar. And it turned out there was actually nothing there. And that's, the, <laughs> that's kind of where we are right now. Oh, I had a few options of what I was going to ask you, and now I've decided. Yesterday on the show, I was making the point that 21% of dollars out there were printed in 2020. And um, someone pointed out to me, and he's a, a friend of both of you and I, um, that we need to be looking at the velocity of money, how much time, how many times, and in, over what time period money actually changes hands. And of course, that's fallen through the floor and hasn't adjusted. What's more important for inflation and the inflation discussion? Is it the sheer amount of money printing that's going on or the velocity of that money? Well, I mean, the velocity is, I'm trying to find a way to say this in English, but the velocity is I know. <laughs> I failed. When you have, uh, when, when you, when you have a, uh, you know, when we're in, in, in an environment of zero short-term interest rates, there's not a whole lot of incentive to, you know, get, to get that, that money isn't really burning a hole in your pocket. It's just another form of saving. And so it, it, the, it, it, anything, the past 15 years have been absolute death on anybody, on the idea that the quantity of money is the big driver of inflation. Uh, all, all of our monetary aggregates uh, have gone you know, through the roof without showing up in higher inflation because we're in a situation where interest rates are very low and it, it, there's no, the velocity of money is basically Basically, at this point, if you put out more money, all that happens is that the velocity goes down. It doesn't actually uh, feed the mm. economy. So, no, I mean, of, of the various things, I, I think I take seriously concerns that we might be delivering a stimulus big enough to cause some inflation. I consider it totally off point to look at M2 or M1 or high-powered money or any of those things and say, oh, look, that's inflationary, because that, that, we're not in that kind of world and haven't been for a long time. Well, I have 10 seconds. Nothing about what you're seeing is inducing you to buy crypto. <laughs> I, it, that still looks to me like it's a combination of, of libertarian derp and, and techno babble. Sorry, just because the price is high doesn't <laughs> just taste checking. that. Just checking. Paul, great to have you on. Paul Griffin, New York Times Thank columnist you. and Nobel laureate there. Thank you. We'll speak soon. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are open for business on the last trading day of the week. And we've got a mixed open on news that the U.S. economy added fewer than 300,000 jobs last month. Just to remind you, we were expecting job growth of more than one million. Now, bond investors reacting to the data to 10-year yields falling to almost one-month lows. Today's numbers saw them all surprising given the recent evidence of stronger U.S. growth, including widespread labor, parts and commodity shortages that might fuel inflation 
As we were discussing with Paul Krugman, lots of talk too now that the Biden administration might be forced to dial back on aggressive stimulus plans as the economy booms. So what does this jobs number mean? Joining us now, Julian Emmanuel, the chief equity and derivatives strategist at BTIG. Julian, great to have you with us. Your thoughts? Well, it's a lot to unpack and, and we'll try and do it. First of all, the number itself unequivocally disappointing, no question about that. But what it really shows you is that the last year that we've been living in and for the foreseeable future, the uncertainty around both the actual data itself and the ability to predict the data, the economic volatility day to day and week to week in the economy is very difficult for economists to model. Now, from our point of view, the reason that there it was the significant shortfall, again, a couple of things stand out to us. Number one, the participation rate continues to be very, very subdued. I think that's due to a combination of uh, the supplemental unemployment benefits, which run into September. But also when you think about it in terms of the service sector, uh, there could be uh, some residual hesitancy to wait until uh, joining the labor force until the population becomes even more fully vaccinated. And then the other thing that stands out to us, and this is something we've been talking about a lot the last several weeks, is if you look at the manufacturing number was actually down and what that points to is this whole idea of supply chain disruption. Mm. Think about the news that we've had of all these auto plants being idled in terms of capacity because of the semiconductor shortage. That's something that's likely to be with us in fits and starts for quite a while yet to come. Yeah, chip shortage is the other one. I guess it would be lumber as well with the construction sector. If you either can't buy, get hold of or afford lumber, quite frankly, then that's going to impact um, that part of the market too. What does it all mean? Because you described the markets being in a pause phase. And some part of the, the, the question here is whether we continue to see rotation within the aggregate stock market or we see some kind of pullback consolidation period. What do you think? Well, sure. So to us, for the time being, and actually, if you think about it, today's data likely mm. reinforces this psychology because what it does is that it convinces the markets uh, incrementally more to believe Chairman Powell's narrative that inflation is transitory rather than more permanent. Now, uh, regardless of the labor market uh, weakness uh, with regard to today's report, we are still likely to see some very high inflation prints. As you mentioned, we're seeing it in the price of lumber, corn, uh, many other things. Um, but in essence, to us, what it likely does, and you're seeing it uh, in, in the markets as they open this morning, is that the, the reaction is to go back to higher multiple, uh, you know, sensitive names to rates, technology. We happen to think consumer staples is a very interesting area uh, in that regard because it has lots of bond-like characteristics and there are a whole slew of consumer staples names that are able to pass on uh, the price increases that they're seeing uh, through their supply chain. But at the broad market level, it likely means continued churn, uh, particularly if uh, some of the gains in some of the more deeper value stocks, financials, energy, things that we like long term, uh, come off a little bit given the softer data. There's been some strange things going on, and I think reaction in during earnings season was key, sort of a weak response to the tech earnings, even when 
bond yields are coming down, which should be a good thing for tech. The Nasdaq was sort of underperforming, volatility rising even as the stock market rises. Can you just explain to us what what we're seeing? So, so first off, on, on volatility rising when the stock market rising, uh, that is a bit of a yellow flag for us. And again, increases the probability that uh, if the inflation data heat up over the coming weeks, as we expect possible, the likelihood of a pullback, not right. just a rotation, increases. Uh, this happened last summer uh, before you saw a pullback in September. It happened at the end of 2018. We had a very difficult fourth quarter. It also happened at the beginning of 2018. It's just the market expressing its discomfort with the rapidity of gains. It doesn't say anything about the long-term potential for stocks to rise higher, which we believe is the case. But it does uh, warn of, of, of caution um, in the near term. And then again, th this whole idea that between technology and value, um, we've seen a lot of the, you know, the meme stocks, uh, biotech, very weak. The former leaders start to weaken. Uh, it does point to the potential for this pause to go on as earnings, which are admittedly incredibly strong, sort of play catch up to where market valuations are. Yeah, makes sense to me. I can feel something. Julian, great to have you with us as always. Thank you for your perspective. Julian Emmanuel, Chief Equity and Derivatives Strategist at BTIG. All right, coming up after the break, they're bold and they're beautiful, at least to me they are. Why diamonds with a difference are now catching the eye. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. For generations, lovers of diamonds have been drawn by their scarcity, purity, and natural beauty. They are coveted as a precious natural commodity. Well, now there are signs that mined diamonds are being loved a little less because of the environmental and human cost of extracting them. Instead, buyers are falling for stones made in a lab. You're actually looking at a range of man-made diamonds from Pandora, the world's largest jewellery maker. It says it will no longer use mined diamonds, and that's partly because consumer demand is changing. Alexander Lasik is the CEO of Pandora and joins us now. Fantastic to have you on the show. What's been the response to your announcement? I, the response to the announcement has been fantastic, uh, at least from the media angle and our employees. We only started selling them in UK yesterday, so it's a little bit early to say how the consumer response is, but uh, we're hopeful. How much do they cost? I mean, obviously, the, the cost of a, a mine diamond varies greatly, but just give me a sense of the cost of creating a, a mine diamond, because the cost has come down quite dramatically in recent years, too. I mean, the starting point for or the entry price uh, for a ring at uh, 0.15 carat in our range is going to be somewhere around $300. Uh, and then it goes all the way up to, let's say, $1,500 for a one carat ring. And then that you can contrast to um, a quite uh, more expensive uh, versions when they're mined, uh, probably to the tune of both 2 and 3x what I just mentioned. So there's a large value difference. You talk about them being a, a symbol of innovation, I think, and, and progress and beauty, but also sustainability. You know, I've read a number of different reports and obviously the source here and who's funding the report matters, whether they're within the diamond industry themselves or not. But they talk about the, the carbon footprint of, of uh, lab-produced diamonds is actually being higher 
Alexander, can you give me a sense of the relative costs here outside of price? Uh, I mean, if you look at the um, environmental footprint, um, the, the vast majority of that is comes into the production of the of the stone. Um, and we and there's a lot of electricity, of course, that's being used in, in this instance. But we're using 60% uh, renewable energy on the current production run, uh, mm-hmm. and next year there's going to be 100% of renewable uh, energy. So, so actually, the footprint is a fraction in comparison to to other alternatives out there. And you've also said you're only going to use recycled gold and silver products by 2025 as well. So this is a fundamental shift, I think, throughout Pandora's jewelry. <clears throat> Well, I mean, we've taken a stance as a company to move to becoming a low-carbon business. Uh, and, and as part of that, we've looked at, you know, the initially within our own four walls, what's the impact that, that we do? Uh, and, of course, the, the materials, the silver in particular, which is kind of the, the, the volume product inside our four walls. So we are already uh, quite far advanced when it comes to using uh, only recycled uh, gold, most of it is actually recycled that we're currently using. Uh, then we've taken a stance on um, kind of only using renewable energy to to run our plants in Thailand. Uh, and then we've also joined the science-based initiative where we're trying to figure out what our impact is outside of our own four walls. And we're going to publish some ambitious targets on that later this year. So, so we're taking a, a holistic view on how we can become a, a much more responsible corporate citizen when it comes to this aspect. Because it is a consumer view, too, because I mentioned it at the beginning in the introduction, the exclusivity uh, of a diamond. Do you think that ever goes away ultimately or are you just targeting a specific subset? Because some of the images that we were seeing, I couldn't tell the difference between a a mined diamond there or a lab produced diamond. But when I look at the amount of jewellery that you sold as as pieces of diamonds, 50,000 versus 85 million pieces of jewellery that you sold last year. It's just a fraction of your business. How much more business do you think you can capture with a lower price point and using this specific lab-produced diamond? So, so, so I'd like to talk about something else. I think <laughs> the reason <laughs> why, why you buy this is, is not because it's cheap. Uh, rather the opposite. There's an allure, there's a, there's a magic around uh, this space. Uh, and if you look at what, uh, you know, the existing uh, diamond market has been, you know, pegging their marketing idea around, it's been about this eternal promise, uh, which, you know, I think the Beers coined that diamonds are forever. Mm. And of course, it's been much more directed towards the bridal and engagement market, naturally. We have tried to kind of not copy that, but rather create our own uh, marketing platform around this idea of, of infinite possibilities. So we really want to celebrate women that have been through a transformation or or when they want to kind of um, maybe plan for a transformation in, in some aspects of their life. That's the marketing idea. Then, of course, we are turning to people that are um, coming into the Pandora frame today. And affordability is a very important aspect for them. So I'm actually not trying to compete with the people that are, are out to spend a very different amount of money for, for a bridal uh, proposition. We're here more as a self-purchasing idea. And the affordability aspect is important for the Pandora customer. So, so I think the starting point is very different. We still want to make sure that there's allure and magic uh, around this proposition. This is not a, a value grab. I think that that would be, uh, you know, a, a, a fail-proof. Uh, I mean... That would not be a successful route if I, that was my only argument. No, but you did answer my question. 
actually in the end. So it's uh, diamonds are forever and now they're for everyone too. Absolutely. That can be uh, your yes. mantra. <laughs> Alexander, yes. great to have you. It is. This. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Alexander Lassig, okay. the CEO of Pandora. Great to have you with us. All right, so after the break, strap on your diamond-encrusted hard hat for what goes up must come down. As an out-of-control rocket spirals to the Earth at thousands of miles an hour, the Chinese who put it up there say it'll probably be okay. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Tesla CEO Elon Musk gearing up to host popular American comedy show Saturday Night Live. Hi, I'm Elon Musk, and I'm hosting SNL this week with musical guest Miley Cyrus. What's new with you, Elon? I just did a successful rocket launch this week. Hmm. Wow. Well, I did my laundry. Congrats. <laughs> Actually, no, I didn't. And uh, Dogecoin has been trading up in anticipation that he will use his time on SNL to promote the cryptocurrency. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, I have to say, I'm not the best auto cue reader in the world, but that, that, was, that was pretty dodgy. But most importantly, crypto, does he dodge talking about the cryptocurrency or does he talk about Dogecoin, etc.? What do we Ooh, think? That's a good one. You, you have to think that the, uh, the writers are going to let Musk have some free reign, uh, you know, in, in a nod to his musical guest, will any comments wind up being a wrecking ball to cryptocurrency prices? That remains to be seen. <laughs> I think it's very fascinating, though, that Elon Musk is, in many respects, almost a caricature now. So there's a lot that he can poke fun at himself and that the writers can help him along. Dogecoin and Bitcoin, he may talk about that. He may talk about Tesla a little bit. So watch Tesla stock on Monday. I doubt he's going to finally announce a chief operating officer on Saturday Night Live for Tesla, but who knows? He's done crazier things. It's going to be very fascinating to see if Bitcoin, Dogecoin, other cryptos actually move. Is there the audience that watches Saturday Night Live religiously are they crypto fans? Maybe, maybe not. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if prices move or if it's kind of a non-event because, again, he's not likely to say anything that would be material, one would hope, during this venue. It's not a shareholder event. It's not an earnings call. I have to say, I think we're very hopeful in saying that. I feel like Elon Musk is a law unto himself, quite frankly, and says whatever he feels like in the moment and, and tweets about it. But we have seen this dramatic run up in Dogecoin. And I was just looking at social media and the sheer excitement about references, perhaps, that he makes to space and um, off to the moon and people saying that that's some kind of hidden meaning for the crypto space and, and that prices are going to rally further. Um this is going to be a unique moment, I think, for SNL, for Elon Musk and for cryptocurrencies. And I loved your wrecking ball uh, reference, too. Thank you very much. I mean, yeah, it's possible that he could say something that moves the broader uh, crypto markets. As you point out, Dogecoin is now a top five coin. It's number four. It's trailing only Bitcoin, Ether and Binance. So it is legitimately a major presence in the cryptocurrency world, even if it still may be just a canine-themed joke. Yeah, and this is this is really important. The number of people that I have conversations with about this that were not talking about cryptocurrencies before or haven't recently, this in some way has captured attention. And of course, what we can't get away from is there is a business aspect here because, of course, Tesla has Bitcoin on the balance sheet and a lot of it. 
Yeah, that is something that is obviously makes it material for Elon Musk and Tesla anytime he talks about cryptocurrencies. If he's moving the prices, that obviously helps Tesla from the standpoint of their investment in Bitcoin could go up or down as the case may be. So, yes. yeah, I think people will be watching to see what he says. But there's so much more that's ripe for comedy. I mean, going to Mars having a child with a name that when you look at it, it's reminiscent of a 70s prog rock album title. So there's a lot that I think the SNL writing team can prod Musk into making fun of himself, hopefully, because self-deprecating humor for one of the world's wealthiest persons, I think, is what we all need right now. We don't That's, want him taking himself too seriously on SNL. I couldn't agree more. Some self-deprecation, I think, given all his success, will make him um, well and truly loved. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Paul La Monica. Thank you. I'd keep him ad-libbing versus reading autocue. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Uh, now to that rocket that's out of control and is going to crash back to Earth this weekend. China says the chances of anyone coming to harm are extremely low. Few. This is a video of last week's launch. Right now, the rocket's empty core stage is barreling around the planet at 18,000 miles an hour. It's expected to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere over the weekend. The good news, this is not the first object to fall to Earth, and experts say the rocket poses very little threat to our safety. And here's to a happy hour that's out of this world. A bottle of Bordeaux that was aged for 14 months on the International Space Station is now for sale. It's expected to fetch a million dollars at Christie's. The bottle comes with a decanter, glasses and a corkscrew made from meteorite. The European startup company Space Cargo says it will use the proceeds to fund microgravity experiments in farming. That is pretty cool. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Have a great weekend. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.